Celebrated actress Tova Feldshue has played some big names, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, Katherine Hepburn, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But in her first book, Tova introduces us to perhaps the biggest character in her life, her mother, Lily. In her memoir, Lilyville, Mother, Daughter, and Other Roles I've Played, Tova explores the bond between mother and daughter and how we grow to understand our parents better as we age. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Today we're talking with Tova about everything from her childhood in Scarsdale to her latest work in the role of beloved sex therapist, Dr. Ruth. And of course, we laugh along with Tova to stories and Tova's impressions of her mother from her new book. Tova, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. My pleasure. Great to be with you. So you are back on stage in New York City for the first time in eight years, the first time since Pippin. What's it like to be back? It's marvelous. It's my hometown. I was born at 90th and Lexington Avenue in a defunct uh, uh, hospital. And I think, I mean, I think actually I, the last time I was on stage, I think was 2014. So it's really seven years, kind of biblical that I haven't been on the New York stage, though I've been very active in film and television. And of course, did the Los Angeles premiere of Sisters-in-Law, where I played the, the Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And then we had the pandemic. And during the pandemic, I had the joy of sitting down every day for hours and hours and hours and writing my memoir, Lilyville. It's a view of my mother's life through my eyes and a view of my life through her eyes. Yeah, let's talk about Lilyville for a moment now. Lilyville, of course, is not an actual place, but what you call a state of mind. What is that state of mind? Well, I had the most extraordinary... um, Parenting. I had a father who was expressive, uh, very emotionally expressive, a litigator. I played him on Law and Order for many, many years. And I had a mother who was extraordinarily quiet and modest and not a talker during the life of my father. She really gave him the son. As a matter of fact, his his nickname from his own mother was Sonny. And I call my my son Brandon <coughs> Sonny which is the pun on S-O-N-N-Y and S-U-N-N-Y. So my mother was very quiet, and I mistook that quietness for a lack of love, like the black hole of, uh, of the universe, and uh, really grew up without much support from her uh, psychologically, that least support that I could understand. She was very dutiful, and she did many, many good deeds, but uh, she never said, I love you. Hey, Lilyville, and when you say a state of mind, all... Even though all my roles on stage where I've created artificial universes, probably because of the lack of understanding of having my own mother's love in formative years of my life, Lilyville is the dome under which all my Broadway, off-Broadway concerts, movies and television and nightclub acts exist. As Town and Country said, when the standing ovations of thousands don't count as much as the as the positive opinion of one person. So that was the, that's the fulcrum. That's the inciting incident of this memoir. I don't think I could write the same memoir called Sydneyville because I had such a, an unconditionally loving uh, relationship with my father and really it based much of my life, my life's journey on my father's journey. I think of all the one woman shows I've done and that he was a litigator, which is a one man show in a courtroom where your cast is, Uh, A lot of your cast is silent. It's the jury or listening is the judge. And you just have one other character to play against the antagonist, which would be the district attorney, I suppose. 
That being said, did your mother's silence influence you to act, would you say? Did it motivate you? Well, I think by the time I was a little girl, I remember writing about this in the book. I'd look in the mirror and say, are you real? Do you really exist? And this wasn't a judgment about uh, something that was sad. I was really asking the question and looking at myself in the mirror as a literalist, probably around two or three. And then from there, I would put, you know, a scarf over my head and talk in accents. My grandfather had a Russian accent. My grandmother had a British accent. My other grandmother was from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and both my parents were fluent in German, even though they were American kids. Uh, one, they both majored in it in NYU, but my father spoke it. And as my father died, he only spoke German and German saved his life. He was transferred from the infantry into the intelligence of World War II and was one of the interrogators of the SS and the Wehrmacht after the war. Um, of course, he was fluent in German and a Harvard lawyer, very, very good. Um, so what was your question, my friend? My question was whether your mother's silence was a motivating factor for you to get into acting. Yes, I think uh, um, I, I was a pianist originally, a solo instrumentalist, and I couldn't win concertos at National Music Camp. I did get to the finals twice, but I never won either with the Mendelssohn G minor or the Mozart D minor. And I was not willing to be an also-ran, so I tried out for plays with music and immediately started to get roles. Uh, and uh, then was Little Mary Sunshine and Little Mary Sunshine, I was 13. And I said, this bodes well, there's hope here. But that sense of wanting to um, play other people and be appreciated for it very vociferously uh, was born probably by my teen years but even early on, I just had fun dressing up like every kid and playing different parts. I didn't realize that one of the reasons it felt good is because it was immediate gratification if you did well. If you did well. In those years, Andy Warhol had not yet emerged about 15 minutes of fame. The Kardashians would, would never have been stars in those years. You actually had to be an actor. You had to be a, a person of a craft that had an expertise in storytelling and making it appear as if they were the person um, that they are portraying. So yes, I created my artificial communities and my artificial universe that much more reflected my father's love for me and his expression of that love than my mother. This all ironed out, I should say, Lilyville has a very happy ending because my father died now 25 years ago and my mother would outlive him for over 18 years. And during those 18 years, she became the lily of her name. She bloomed like a lily and became much more verbally expressive. You know, she was one of those people who wrote beautiful letters but didn't speak much. I've known people like that. And um, she finally came forth. So what do you think it was that inspired your mother to blossom after your father's death? What was repressing her prior to that? I think when you're born in 1911 on a dining room table in the Bronx and you put yourself through NYU and at NYU, you meet a boy who gets a scholarship to Harvard and they fall, you fall in love and you marry him. Your fate was sealed by the match you made, the match you made. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, born well after my mother, uh, went to Cornell uh, for her bachelor's and for her MRS. You know, she was four to one with the ratio of men to women. She didn't go to Radcliffe, I'm sure she could have gotten in. She went to Cornell. 
So um, my mother gave my father the light and was happy to have it have the warmth on her shoulder and on the arm that was linked through his. But he was the head of a patriarchal family. He was marvelous, very warm. And my father knew death early. His father died suddenly in a week uh, of pneumonia when his father, David, came back from Europe to visit the relatives in Austria and England and France and do business uh, there as well. And also, I'm sure there were relatives in Germany and Poland. In all events, he came home, he died. My father, the, the whole dream of the Ivy League went out the window. My father was a senior at 16 at Patterson High and he applied to a local school, he applied to NYU. And that's where he met my mother who put herself through NYU. And um, she never got her master's degree, which she greatly regretted that she never had any profession of her own. Did she do volunteer work? Of course she did. And so did um, Barbara Bush married to uh, George Bush Sr. That was their life. This is what I call not a fully expressed life. We don't have that anymore, thank God. We're in much better shape. What did your mother want for you when you were a little girl? Did she want the same thing that she had in that marriage and that relationship that she had with your dad? Well, I don't, I don't think so. She was too quiet to stop me. I was also second born. So I had my older brother, David, who, event, who went to Dartmouth and then went into the theater. Then she had me going to Sarah Lawrence and then going into the theater. She said she didn't know what hit her. You know, she um, was much more concerned about David and his ability to earn a living than she was about me. And I earned a very good living because I, I made it on the marquee to Broadway when I was 23 with Yentl. So I, I was very lucky and it was very synchronistic. And it was a girl playing a boy who was studious. Well. If I wasn't that, and also it's based my whole life on my father. So for me to play a boy, whether it be Peter Pan or a girl disguised as a boy as Yentl or St. Joan going to battle in men's garb, I can do it to this day. And I'm a senior citizen. Give me a man's part. And I feel completely confident that I could do it. Even on Law and Order, Danielle Melnick was not originally Danielle Melnick. She was Daniel Melnick. And Deanna Monroe was not Deanna Monroe. I think it was Don Monroe. It was, a, it was a man's part that they then switched its gender. So I feel very at home with that. When my mother finally started to express herself, she was hilarious. I mean, we want to base a television series on her and on her humor. And I want to play her because I'll get all the punchlines. <laughs> what did she basically make fun of? What was her humor like? Her humor was observational and uh, like Jerry Seinfeld's, it had a lot of truth to it and it was very frank. So uh, my our beautiful daughter, uh, Andrews and my beautiful daughter, Amanda gets off the plane from La Coruña, Spain. Um, and my mother and I go pick her up. She'd been studying Spanish abroad. She was still at Spence. This was a, a summer program under the Choate School. And Amanda has size C breasts and my mother has size C breasts and I have size A acorns. And my mother, uh, we pick Amanda up and my mother looks at Amanda and she looks at me and she looks at herself and she goes, well, I guess it skips a generation. (laughs) So that was her comment on our bosoms. Or the most hysterical thing was taking her to the uh, matinee, actor's benefit. I guess it wasn't a matinee, it was an actor's performance of Hair with Will Swenson starring. And at the end of Act One, the actors do come out into the audience and they straddle certain armrests. Well, either they knew I was there or Lily was picked randomly. And Will Swenson was over my mother like the Arch of St. Louis in his loincloth. 
and she and with one with one foot on the left armrest and the other one on the right armrest rest and my mother's in her little saint john suit with her double strand of pearls her matching um, gloves the exact correct correct purse the perfect shoes she's looking up she's looking down she's under a scratch she's looking up she's looking down the house lights come up and i very timidly say mommy how did you like act one she said like it i haven't had sex like this since daddy died <laughs> that is my mother lily <laughs> She was a riot, and and we were so happy for her to to speak, uh, so that the letters she wrote, which weren't all that funny, but were rather insightful and uh, very detailed about her life in Scarsdale, um, she could paint pictures with her words. Uh, it was so wonderful to have her come forth. And as she started to go deaf, I got her, I got a remote keyboard. And I got her an iPad and I would type furiously. I hired assistants to type furiously whenever we took her anywhere so she could see what was being said. And I would always ask the guests to ask her questions and let her regale them of her stories. And it was wonderful, like flushing, I don't have it in the book, but flushing the train of her gown down the toilet at NYU at the first dance she was out with my father and trying to figure out what the hell to do with this wet piece of mermaid cloth at the end of this gorgeous gown. <laughs> she did. Found dim lights in the gymnasium where the dance was being taken. My father was a fabulous ballroom dancer and so was my mother. And that was one of their uh, courting. That was, that was one of the ways they courted. And I'm sure people courted in those days. And uh, they went out for five years, and then it was either marriage or bust. Uh, my mother was not one to have a love affair with the boy she loved before she was married. That was completely forbidden uh, in her mind. And it's not that they were Orthodox Jews. It's just that they were brought up under a lot of moral strictures. And uh, so they eloped. They eloped while he was still at Harvard so they could sleep together. Then two years later, they announced their engagement, and they got married at the Sam Ritz Hotel on the roof. <laughs> oh, God. What did your mom tell you when you told her you wanted to pursue a career in acting? I asked to go to the Juilliard, and she said, you're not going to a trade school. If you want to if you want to be an actor, you'll be that for the rest of your life. Now get an education, meaning that as an actor, you don't have an education. You're not educated. And again, the generation before me, whether it was Eli Wallach or uh, Paul Newman uh, or uh, Marilyn Monroe or any of the Lee Strasberg actors, um, there were very few of them that went to the Ivies or went to academic schools. Um, it was considered a craft. Nowadays, everybody is going to Yale Drama or Juilliard or Carnegie Tech, uh, and there are fabulous uh, programs. But she said, if you're going to do that, get an education first. And I did. I went to Sarah Lawrence. I was a philosophy major, incredibly useful profession to make no money. Um, but I learned to think and I learned to learn. And then I got into Columbia and did not stay. I was there very briefly. I won the McKnight Fellowship in Acting to the Guthrie Theater and went out there for two seasons and held Spears and understudied all the size seven uh, leading ladies and never got to go on for any of them. So when David Merrick offered me the standby to Bernadette Peters as Mabel in Mac and Mabel, I turned it down. Hmm. I said, I will never, ever, and I haven't, I will never understudy again as long as I live. Uh, nor will I stand by. He said, but you don't even have to understudy. You can stand by. You can stay in your apartment at 160 West 71st and call in. You don't even have to come down to the theater. He offered me the part, ironically, of the piano player in Mac and Mabel. It was a supporting role, and I was a very good pianist. And I said, no. And I said, if you ever have a play for me, 
that's a decent part? The answer is yes, but I can't be the understudy. I have to be the chosen actress for it. And it was Dreyfus in rehearsal where I played the wife of Alfred Dreyfus, Lucy Dreyfus. And uh, it was actually a Polish a Polish acting troupe where I would be Miriam Polodnik playing Lucy Dreyfus. And it was being directed by Garson Kanan and Ruth Gordon and Sam Levine were starring in it. And David Merrick said, I love this kid. I believe in her work. Why don't you meet her and see if she's any good for the part of Lucy Dreyfus and Miriam Polodnik. And he said, Tova felt you Miriam Polodnik with a name like that. She's got to be right. And he never auditioned me. He just offered me the role. So I feel very grateful. Our first child is named Garson. Brandon Levy, huh. because of my relationship with Garson, who was the witness at our wedding. Uh, Andrew and I will be married 45 years in March. Well, and congratulations. Was a, was a matron of honor. No, it's, it's, been a, it's been a great ride. And I think without the mothering I had, I might not have been, a, been an actress. But I really needed that second opinion. I had the first opinion. It was my father. I needed that second opinion from the public that I was doing okay. And I promised them I would work hard and, 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 and transform myself into all these different people. I am very proudly, like many actors, not just aspiration, but I am a transformational actor. My job is to become those other people and doggone it, I do not stop the work process until there is a seamless relationship between me and that other person, whether it's Golda, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or Ruth Westheim. Yeah, I want to talk more about the show that you're in now, about Dr. Ruth, but I also want to ask you about whether you ever got that third affirmation from your mom. I I did. I did. I did. I did. Um, As I got older, I asked her if she loved me when I was 18, and it was right out of Fiddler. She said, what do you mean do I love you? Who takes you to dance lessons? Who takes you to Hebrew school? Who buys all your clothes at Lord and Taylor's and Saks? Only the undergarments come from Alexander's. Who makes the nutcake, the strawberry shortcake, the pancakes on Saturday morning? It's your mother. Father's busy at the office earning a living. I am the one who, what do you mean? Of course I love you. It's like that. But as we got older, particularly after I married Andrew, who's a Harvard lawyer, uh, like my father. Andrew's a negotiator. Uh, interesting, that part of him is much more like my mother. My father was a performer. He was a litigator. Uh, but once I married Andy, she felt I was safe. So she you know, was the throne of Andrew Harris Levy. Well, on my wedding day, I had won five awards on Broadway for Yentl, and she said to me, Tova, you can do whatever you want now. And I thought she meant go to Hollywood, you know, make <laughs> movies and you're marrying a Harvard lawyer. And that's, she felt I was, I was safe and sound. Yes, she finally would say, I love you. And I never left her. Once she turned 85 and my father was gone, I had a mantra when I would leave her. I'd say, I love you. I am the luckiest daughter in the world. You're the most wonderful mother in the world. I, I love you now, you know, forever and always. So eventually, as she was dying with aortic stenosis at 95, from which she would not die because she became a medical experiment and would live another eight and a half years, which was unbelievable. I remember the night she started to fail on April the 18th. Um, it must, Amanda was graduating from Spence, so it must have been 2006 because she would live to 2014. And uh, I said, Mommy, I love you. She says, I know, you love me. I'm the best mother in the world. You're the best daughter in the world. I got to get home. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, she was, she very much called me her devoted daughter, her gifted daughter. And I 
miss her very much because as we say in theater when you're doing a character it wasn't an easy get to get her approval your mother your father they named you terry sue you changed your name to tova how has that influenced your life and career and first of all why did you change your name to tova I fell in love with a boy at Wesley and now quite famous since Lin-Manuel is a alum at college uh, and he's a genius. Uh, I fell in love with a boy at Wesley named Michael Fairchild. We were doing The Crucible. I was playing Abigail Wiggins in a co-ed production and Sarah Lunt was all girls. Wesley was all boys. And there was a photographer there, a gorgeous, handsome, blonde-haired, blue-eyed photographer uh, from the college taking pictures of the production. And we eventually started talking and we fell in love. And it was he, when we were head to head in Matunic, Rhode Island, my first job as a professional actress, $30 a week. The one summer I was Terry Fairchild, I took his last name. He said, Terry, what kind of a name? What kind of a name is Terry Sue for a girl like you? You're from the North. It's a diminutive name that's Southern. It'll never be a woman's name. You know, it's like Betty Ann, whatever not to offend any of the Betty Ann's who were there. And don't forget, my parents were busy assimilating. They were the children of immigrants. So Terry Sue was uh, after a Tova and a Sarah. That's how I got my name, my great-grandmother and my great-aunt who died early. My mother loved this aunt, and she died early of, uh, of cancer. Uh, so he said, were you called anything else? And I timidly said I was called Tova in Sunday school. Now, actually, I was called Tova in Hebrew school. I was at Temple Israel Center eight hours a week, and I was the only bat mitzvah at Quaker Ridge School. So between the piano and the bat mitzvah, I stood alone very early in my life, according to the values of my parents. And we didn't belong to a country club. We went to the public pool at Saxon Woods, the public golf course. We didn't own a Cadillac. We drove Pontiacs and Chryslers. So we lived a wonderful upper middle class life, but with restraints. I had one pair of papagallas for parties and one pair for Fridays. And the rich girls had 16 pairs. They bought them at Andrew Geller's and they were very expensive. I had limits in my life and they've served me very, very, very um, well. Um, so I said I was called Tova and he Michael said, Tova, now that's a name. And he started to call me Tova as a love name. And then I didn't change my last name. And when I told my mother that I would like to be called Tova, she went, what? We didn't come to this country for you to be called Tova. Sydney, get over here. Your last name is completely unpronounceable. Now your first name is going to be unpronounceable. Who's going to know what a Tova Felcher is? I won't even know what it is. And so uh, Shakespeare says, what's in a name a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. If, uh, uh, you know, uh, if only that were true now with uh, Twitter and Face- Facebook and and email, of course, we're we're never off. We're 24 seven. There's a lot in the name. A la- name is a moniker. It's a shortcut to tell you what kind of a person this person is or where they're from. And a Tova Felchu is either foreign, orthodox or at least an expert in Judaism. So I was none of this. I was a cheerleader from Quaker Ridge School, but I was an avid student and I had brains enough having carried spears for two years at the Guthrie and never getting a break, never getting a break to understand that if a horse was trotting in a direction that was uh, valuable to me, I should get on that saddle and start to post and ri- ride the horse in the direction it was, it was trotting or galloping 
And that's what happened with Yentl. They figured a Tova felt you could do it. And that was right after Dreyfus in rehearsal with Miriam Palatin. So have I played Catherine Hepburn? Have I played three queens from, from of, of Henry VIII? Have I done Deanna Monroe? Have I played people who are not of my ethnic um, heritage? Many, many, many roles. But my breakthrough roles after 48 years on New York stage have been these huge Jewish heroines, pretty much Yentl, Golda, now uh, Ruth Westheimer. Now here you are playing Dr. Ruth once again, this time at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. What does it mean for you to be taking on the role of Dr. Ruth? It's, it's of all the great roles I've played, and I've been so blessed. I just finished playing Anthony Hopkins' wife in Armageddon Time, and Anne Hathaway was our daughter. Very interesting piece. And I just finished working with a very good actor named Finn Whitrock in uh, doing um, an independent film by Joel Gretsch called Start Without Me. So I've had great roles, and they're not all Jewish, et cetera, et cetera. But of all the great women I've played, she has impinged the most and in the most positive way on my daily life. Because she's still alive, because she still, she has to do with sex therapy and we all have sex. Oh, uh, um, blinking light here. You will have sex till you're dead, particularly with the drugs that are available to your, your husbands or your lovers or whoever they are. So just to be clear, that my husband and I, after 45 years, have a very active, very sexy sex life. We do, we do, we do. And also sharing a religion with her, sex has never been a shameful thing in Judaism. It's marvelous. We're not burdened with this huge thing of the original sin. Of course, it's in Genesis, but it's not the way we operate. We op we're mitzvah, deeds of love and kindness. You can be a good Jew without believing in God. You can't be a good Jew without doing mitzvahs. If you do deeds of love and kindness. So she was ripped away. Her backstory is so extraordinary. And I beg you to come to the show before we close on January 2nd. Her backstory is so extraordinary and so secret. She doesn't represent her that herself that way. After all, as she says, she's a Yekish. She's a German Jew. She's not going to burden you with the fact that she was on a kinder transport as her mother and father and grandmother were being gassed in Auschwitz, which she didn't know. She's supposed to go to an orphanage for six months. She was there for six years, never allowed to go to high school and given a certificate to be a maid, to be a domestic at the age of 16. So guess what? She chose to go to Israel and join the Jewish underground and she became a sniper. She's a sharpshooter. Can you believe this? And then she got herself to the Sorbonne and from the Sorbonne, she got herself to America because she was given reparations by the German government and penniless without a high school diploma and without a baccalaureate, she won a scholarship to the new school to get her master's in, ed in sex education and won another uh, uh, scholarship to get her doctorate in education from Columbia Teachers College. So I don't know about you, but to, to me, that's an astonishing arc of a life. And she's still alive. Yeah. And she was at the theater yesterday. And she's at the theater every Wednesday <laughs> night to do a Q&A. If, you, if you're busy, if you're free on a Wednesday, the 22nd or the 29th, I beg you to come because she's there and we do a question and answer right afterwards. She's made a huge impression on my life. She is relentless in seeing the glass half full. Well, let me take it back to Lilyville before we let you go. What would Lily think of Lilyville if she had the opportunity to read this book? She would be proud that I accomplished this huge legacy for our family. And I'd like to share with you the end of the book. It's called Taking the Final Bow. It says, Lilyville, 
What happens to a town when its namesake passes away? What happens when the mayor has left office? Where are the monuments and where are the plaques? Well, one thing I can tell you, a ghost town, Lilyville is not. It is a thriving metropolis, the height of Manhattan and the breadth of the universe. Andy and I, David, my brother, and Martha, my sister-in-law, stand as the great bridges linking the island of family to its past. Our children stand as skyscrapers and their children as superhighways, still under construction, going out into the world. The thousands of photographs are the billboards, liberally peppered above every street in every direction you look, ever reminding the future generations to look at who was there, look at what they did, look at their legacy. And if you happen to walk through the heart of town and notice a gorgeous, majestic theater with a sparkling marquee, there in electric lights ever and always will shine Lillian Kaplan Felchu above the title of the long running now and forever generational hit, Lilyville. And you know, I still speak to her when I'm in Quag, I go to the sea every day and speak to my mother in the ocean where all life began. And uh, that's one thing when a person leaves their body, you can put them anywhere. So keep your glass half full and know you can speak to those who have left their body. If energy cannot be created or destroyed, then it's somewhere out there and you can access it. Tova, an absolute pleasure talking with you. The book is Lilyville. Your play runs through January 2nd. Go see it. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And those of you who don't have time to read, for God's sakes, buy the audiobook. I play all the roles and you will love it. So you'll be on your be on your treadmill and you can listen to me. I can keep you company. You can learn more about Tova Felchu and her work by visiting her website, tovafelchu.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks to producer Abby Delk. I'm George Boldarki. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>